Hello, it's Kevin Yank again, and welcome back to Elmtown. We are here today talking about uh, Herzog Dre, a 60 frames per second game with SVG graphics written by Francesco Orsenigo. Hi, Francesco. Hi. Good to hear you today. Before we get into it, I just want to acknowledge our sponsor. Once again, we have ElmConf 2018 sponsoring the episode and our hosting and bandwidth for the podcast this week. Um, ElmConf 2018 is in St. Louis, Missouri. You should go. It, the tickets are only $125. You can find out all about it at elm-conf.us. The speakers are announced there. I think, like I said last time, I wish I could go, but I am very far away. Uh, if you don't have that excuse, then you should definitely go. Wouldn't you agree, Francesco? Yes, definitely. Last uh, conference was a blast. I'm jealous of anyone who's gotten to go. I just, I just have to uh, watch the videos afterwards and uh, be jealous of the people who got to be there. So welcome to the show, Francesco. You and I met in Melbourne, didn't we? Yes. Yes, we did. And we're continuing the trend of me inviting all of my local friends on. But you're not a local friend anymore. You're coming to me from what part of the world today? Uh, Gothenburg, Sweden. I think you were probably one of the first people I knew who was using Elm a lot. I always made programs, but I wanted to be able to share them. So I wanted something that runs uh, in a browser. At the same time, I was getting tangled with Haskell. I really, really liked the language. and. I, I was eager to try something similar. I actually actively looked for an Haskell in the browser and Elm popped up. I have never written Haskell, so you got to tell me what's so great about it. Okay, I studied physics and I like mathematics. Uh, Haskell, from that point of view, from the point of view of the syntax, if you want, is beautiful. It's very, very elegant. The way it was designed uh, really resonated with me. I have to, to say that once I tried to actually write a program in Haskell, uh, it was a terrible experience because the documentation is non-existent, the library design is not really good, and it's not really um, inviting for newbies. That's what I've heard about Haskell, is it's a really steep learning curve. So even as someone who is coming from the domain where that language is really popular, you found that too? Um, yes, I found the problems were practical, not about understanding monads, but understanding how to concatenate two strings. Ah, right. What I've also heard is that Elm takes a lot of the complexity and steep learning curve away from Haskell. Was that something you were looking for as well, or was that just a side benefit? It was a side benefit. Okay. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't expect that it could have been so good. And so what kind of programs were you trying to make to share? Games. <laughs> okay, tell me about your obsession with writing games then. I, I always liked playing video games. There was a, a particular uh, strategy game called Master of Magic. It came out in 1994. It was a great game. And I said to myself, I would love to play with friends. Okay, so I can modify the game and make it a multiplayer. No, it's not really how programs work. So I said, okay, I have to rewrite it from scratch. <laughs> but to rewrite it from scratch, I need to learn programming. So I take the C manual, I open it at page one, and, and that's how I learn programming. I think a lot of us who learn programming as kids probably came into it that way, of, of wanting to make our own games. Ah, yes, yes. You weren't only um, making games with Elm. I mean, I happen to know you, you worked for a local company here in Melbourne that was doing Elm in production as well. Yes. Tell me about your non-game experience with Elm. 
it was really, really good. Um, something that frustrates me when doing front-end development is how complicated the build pipeline is. Like, in order to build uh, a modern web application, you need at least 10 different tools. Francesca, I think I just read something on Reddit. It's now 11. Uh -huh. Yes, and you have a lot, lot of moving parts that are basically designed to force JavaScript into doing something that it was not designed to do. Mm. And you really appreciate Elm because it takes a step back and thinks, okay, if we design JavaScript today, knowing how the modern web looks like, what would we do? This is why I think Elm uh, makes the experience so smooth, so nice. Like, it's a single step. Can you tell me a bit about the, the project that you were using Elm on? So I was working for Stacks, and basically uh, what we were doing um, uh, was a platform where non-technical people can get insights about the usage of Amazon Web Services. So mostly we were displaying a lot of charts, a lot of graphs, and uh, some decently powerful filters. Um, initially, we were using React and Redux, and bit by bit, we started to insert Elm. Initially, we had Elm embedded inside React, but the, the real complexity was at the root of the application, like the piece of the code that decided which page to display and with what data. So we started trying to embed React inside Elm. At some point, we had Elm that contained React that contained Elm, which sounds like a monster, but it actually was a very pragmatic approach, and it works surprisingly well. Wow, okay. You were, you were using Elm before you joined Stacks? Yes, I was uh, organizing the Elm meetup before then, and the other person who was very active in the Elm community in Melbourne is Sebastian Porto, who became my colleague at, in Stacks. So the two front-end developers of Stacks were the two people that organized the Elm community uh, in Melbourne. So right. our, our CTO says, okay, I, I give up. There, there's, no, there's no way I'm, I'm going to prevent you from using Elm. Yes. So when I, I mean, when we started using Elm at CultureAmp, Stacks was the 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 one example that we knew of that that, that a, a company that was using this tool successfully. So I guess I have to thank you and Sebastian for that of setting that example that I could I could see a, a real app running. Uh, we we were totally the Melbourne Trailblazers. Well, great. So tell me about the games that you were writing as all this was going on. I was challenging myself, like how messy a code can I write with Elm before I actually need to refactor. <laughs> and um, also, I wanted to test uh, uh, the GamePad API because apparently browsers support GamePads. Uh, so High Fish came up. It was a super simple game. Basically, each GamePad controls a triangle on the screen and the triangles are trying to shoot each other. I used ports for the sound. It was my first foray into SVG graphics. I patched together what later became Elm Gamepad, the Elm library to use gamepads. Um, and I started to, you know, uh, get a feeling for how it would be uh, to manage complexity in Elm. Tell me about Elm Gamepad. What was... What did you have to do in order to write an interface with like a browser API like that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would guess it's not straightforward. Uh, no, 
it wasn't. Like the idea, it is straightforward because you just query for the navigation dot game uh, get gamepads, uh, and that gives you the list of gamepads with the state of their buttons and axes. The problem is that this state is just two arrays of numbers, so it's very difficult to know if the player is pressing the A button or the B button because you just see numbers changing. So is it not a non-standard array of numbers? It'll vary from one gamepad it, to another? It is as non-standard as it gets. It is okay, the, it's just... the <laughs> mo- most non-standard thing I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> I have four gamepads. They are identical. They are recognized in three different ways. No. Uh, that you have to multiply for every version of a particular browser, say Chrome or, uh, or Firefox, and that you have to multiply for the operative system. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Did you have to write sort of like a, a registration? The W3C defines a standard gamepad. So if you're lucky, you insert the gamepad, the browser tells you that that is a standard gamepad, and that's mapped already. That's automatic. You don't, do, you don't have to do anything. A lot of gamepads, and again, it depends from the browser, the browser version, the operative system, on the firmware of the gamepad, will not be recognized as a standard gamepad. So the current approach is to provide a tool that's really easy to use to allow the user to remap it. So mm, right, yeah. uh, you, you tell the library which commands you want, and the library will tell the user, hey, user, press the button that you want to use for firing. Yep. Or A, user, press the button that you want to use for jumping. Uh, it is a decently easy uh, process, and it's also reliable. But you had so, to write that all yourself. Yes. So even before you get to make a game, you have to write a whole app for, for configuring gamepads. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, it was a learning experience. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. It was oftentimes frustrating because, hey, the browser changed. Now everything is haywire. The browsers have their quirks um, that you have to accommodate for. For example, uh, Microsoft Edge on Windows 10, uh, the latest version, uh, sometimes send you some uh, zombie gamepads. Like, right. send you a gamepad, but the, the entry is actually empty. So I have to call them um, I think and gamepad takes care of a lot of things. So the, the experience should be decently smooth. So you had your gamepads up and running. You were able to control the triangles shooting at each other. Why was it called High Fish? Uh, I was listening to Rammstein and their song was called High Fish, which means shark in German. Um, I seem to have a thing for German names uh, for my video games. <laughs> <laughs> So were there any other games between High Fish and your latest creation? No, not really. Okay, so speaking of weird German titles, I'm going to ask you, what does Herzog Dry mean? The first game that's uh, um, accepted as the first RTS was called Herzog 2, oh. which means Duke 2 because it was the second version of a game that was just called Herzog. And it was a very old uh, Sega Master System uh, game where basically you had your robot, you go around shooting and conquering bases, and the robot could transform in an airplane. Sounds familiar. So that's that's the origin of the game. So that was Herzog 2, so Duke 2, and my game is called Herzog 3, which translates to Duke 3. I am looking at this game in my browser right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's running on my screen, and we have bases at, at 
either side of the screen, and uh, there are robots pouring out of those bases, making their way through kind of a maze or, or a, a, a field of obstacles. Mm -hmm. And they, there are other bases in the middle that they can take over while they clash with each other on the field. All, I can see that the robots, as they start to take damage, they have little meters on them that go down. There are also those uh, planes that can turn into robots. That, uh, and I guess you get to choose whether you have this cool-looking plane or a helicopter. You get to choose the appearance of your, your vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, that vehicle is the thing that you're controlling directly in the game. And everything yes. else is kind of moving in response to what you're doing with yes. that vehicle, right? The player is moving the... Uh, the main mech it has direct control only on that so there is a lot going on on the screen i haven't even mentioned the missiles that are flying off or the healing uh, uh bolts that go between your vehicle and the units that belong to you if you're nice and close to them there is a lot going on here and i guess the thing that would seem the most intimidating to me if I were going to try and implement this would be the AI. These, all of these robots are moving independently and they seem to have a collective strategy that they're following. This is a far cry from two uh, user-controlled triangles. <laughs> yes, it is. So um, moving your main vehicle, uh, you can, th there is a button and if you press that button, uh, it will set um, a rally point for your robots. So all the robots will try to converge on the rally point that the player has set. The AI is not particularly intelligent in that I'm using the Digikistra pathfinding algorithm, which is very useful if you want to move a lot of units on the same on the same point because you calculate the pathfinding only once and every unit, even you have 100, you have 1000, they can use the same data. Right, so it's it's not calculating the optimal path for each robot from its current location. Nope. It's, it's calculated a path from a base to uh, the rally point that you've specified? Um, it calculates uh, all the paths from every point in the map to the rally point. Holy moly! Yes. So there's a fair bit of work to do in response to that one key press. Um, yes, and I had big problems with the performance for that. So that's the other thing is, I forgot to mention, all of this is running at 60 frames per second. Yes. Uh, the main bottleneck for the performance was the pathfinding algorithm. My first approach was to use a dictionary that used as a key, a tuple with the two coordinates of the tiles. Makes sense. And uh, it was ridiculously slow. <laughs> when, when I profiled uh, the application, I found that like 90% of the time was spent in a dictionary get. Wow. So when I switch from using a XY tuple to just an index, the time went down significantly. Right. One thing that Elm does not shine here is that Elm is not really fast for crunching numbers. I did the same implementation in JavaScript and it was about 10 times faster. Wow, that's interesting. Because mm -hmm. you hear you hear so much about how things like the virtual DOM algorithm in Elm is really competitive with, with other JavaScript frameworks and, and libraries out there. It's interesting to hear that the raw number crunching uh, is a bit of a bottleneck in this case. Um, yes, because Elm was designed with the modern web in mind, not with the modern video games in mind. Hmm. The demands of a video game are very different than the demands of a web page. Even the, the general architecture that you want to use is very different from, from a web page. 
if you write a web page in Elm, everything is contained into something and contains something else. So it is a tree. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a simulation video game is very different because it has a flat hierarchy. Everything is trying to interact with everything else in every possible way. Right. I think I see what you mean. So because a robot can interact with a bullet, can interact with a base, can interact with a wall, all of these things in a way need to be the same kind of thing or at least uh, treated as peers in the model of your program state. Exactly. Because, for example, sometimes the unit interacts with the bullet, sometimes it's a bullet that interacts with the unit. A hierarchy is used to constrain the the kind of things that you do, which is perfect for a web page. But in a simulation, uh, you don't want this constraint, which is why a flat architecture is necessary. I have not looked at the code for Herzog Drei, but is it very different from a typical T web app? Um, yes. I'm not using the Elm architecture, for example. Well, I'm wow. using it for the menus and stuff. So at some point, the, the web app that is the shell for your game gives way to the part of the code that is the game, and it looks completely different. Yes. What does it look like? Well, my first approach, you know, I was new to functional programming and I said, okay, I have to update the units. So I'm just going to do a list.map over the units so that the units can update themselves. But then, like, if I want to spawn a, a bullet, for example, or an explosion, how do I do this? Well, I have to go through the units again and the unit have to decide whether they are spawning a bullet, for example, or doing some effect on the game. Then you have the list of effects, and then you have to apply it on the game. But it, it means that you are actually updating again the units that you have just updated. I know like the structure was really, really complicated. I, I didn't know how to manage complexity. The problem of Elm is that it is, it is an immutable language. In an environment where you can't change anything, how do you shoot someone? <laughs> this is a very violent point of view. Yes. <laughs> but it was the approach that uh, John Carmack, if you don't know him, he's the guy who wrote the code for Doom. And he is very passionate about video game development. He gave a talk about his attempt to write uh, Wolfenstein in Haskell. Wow, okay, that sounds like a good starting point. He really liked the, the, the purity, the absence of side effects, the ability to do a lot of calculations in parallel. And he had a very interesting idea, which was instead of using an enum, instead of using a union type to describe all the possible ways that an entity can affect the world, use just a a partially applied function. I felt I was struck by lightning. Let's say that an entity wants to heal another entity. I'm I'm not as violent as Carmack. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say that you have a function that takes the ID of the target unit and uh, the amount of healing that you want to do, and it returns a function. It's a function that takes the world and gives you a new version of the world. Wow. Which is a a formalization for any generic uh, change in the world state. So I am looking at the bullets flying around on my screen right now. And in my mind, each of those bullets has a little partially applied function uh, attached to it that is saying, anything that touches me is getting this function applied to it. Is that literally how the game is modeled? Pretty much. 
Wow. Um, basically, every entity at every cycle runs a think function. So I have a projectile think function that checks for collision. And if it detects a collision, it returns a delta with a function that takes the world, finds the target unit, removes some health from the unit, and returns a new version of the world where that unit has a bit less health. Does it make sense? It does. And uh, wow, just the concept of immutable data applied at a, however simplified, but at a world scale is just really inspiring to me. When I'm when I'm watching the game unfolding in front of me and I'm imagining the, the number of versions of that world that are existing at each of those frames, it's kind of mind boggling that it, it runs as well as it does. Yes, um, initially I was a bit skeptical about this approach because if you, if you have 1,000 objects and each of the 1,000 objects produces two, three deltas, it means that you have to update the whole game state 3,000 times every 16 milliseconds. And it can get slow. I could see how how much time you spend in a dictionary get could be really crucial in that sort of architecture. <laughs> yes. So the other thing I notice about this is that the graphics are all SVG. If I resize my browser window, the, the whole play field uh, resizes smoothly. Mm -hmm. um, was using SVG always the plan? Was it something you had any doubts about? Because I guess I've always just assumed that SVG would be too heavy for moving this many things around this quickly. Mm -hmm. And I would assume I'd need to be using something more lightweight like uh, Canvas graphics. When I wrote Highfish, I was surprised by how smooth the SVG ran. Now, Herzog Dry is a lot more complicated than Highfish. There are a lot more objects that need to be drawn. No kidding. And, <laughs> and again, I think this is really where Elm shines. Uh, the updates are really, really smooth and especially consistent. Like, I don't see myself doing something like this in React. You know, React oftentimes updates the page three times when you when you change something. If you updated three times in Highfish, you would have one third of the current frame per second. Instead, Elm updates exactly and only when needed and applies the new DOM state so smoothly that you can actually make a video game with it. You can make animation with it. You released this game, you announced it on Elm Discourse a couple of weeks ago. What was the line you were trying to get to uh, that made it a point at which you felt ready to share this project? And what things would you like to do next with it that you haven't had time to do? I think it was just a couple of weeks before uh, Elm Europe and uh, I displayed the, the game at Elm Europe and I wanted people to have seen it already yep. before they came there. So conference-driven development. Yeah, pretty much. It's the best kind. I think some <laughs> of my best projects have happened on conference deadlines as well. <laughs> yeah. So what's left to solve in this? What missing features are there in your view? My to-do list is really, really long. <laughs> I, I would like to add a fourth uh, vehicle. There are a lot of game designs thing that I would like to add. For example, I, I added the screen shaking, I want to add sound, many small tweaks uh, that make the game more... Engaging? Engaging, yes. For, for example, give a bit of a recoil when you're shooting, so you feel the power of the weapon that you're using, for example. Yeah. The stuff that takes it from feeling like a simulation to something that is fun to play. Exactly. Initially, I was thinking about making a split screen game. So every player would have their small part of a large map 
the whole level would not fit in a screen. But then uh, I realized I wanted Herzog Drive to be a very casual couch uh, multiplayer. So you sit in front of the screen with your friends and you just shoot each other, mayhem, explosions, <laughs> so v very light. And I thought that having all the vehicles and the units together would allow for more interaction among the players, which is why the, the map is so small, relatively speaking. Yeah, it fills up quickly, that's for sure. <laughs> I have to say it's already pretty fun to play. I have every time I open it up to prepare for this podcast to remind myself of the details of this thing, I end up playing two games of it. <laughs> okay, I'm 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 really glad you enjoyed it. That's <laughs> that's the best thing for a, for a game developer. So, just to close us off, if if someone in, is listening to this right now and thinking they would love to be making their own game as in Elm, what is your advice for getting started? Well, first of all, join uh, game dev in uh, elm slack and uh, have fun be ambitious try to do something that it's big and messy and complicated it's it's totally worth it and elm can do it and uh, the good news is uh, francesco has already solved the problem of getting gamepad input for you <laughs> actually i i did some research and as far as i can tell uh, Elm is the only environment that has uh, remapping tools. So it's the only environment where if the user has a gamepad, you're guaranteed that they can use it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to end, Francesco. Thank you for joining us in Elmtown. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And we'll be back with another episode soon from Francesco Orsenigo and Kevin Yank. Bye from Elmtown. Bye.